Promise no promises. Ages of receivership. The podcast Promise No Promises unfolds a further series of episodes devoted to ages of receivership on generous listening. The series emerged from the Spring 2022 Master Symposium at the Institute Art, Gender, Nature, HGK, FHNW, moderated by Chus Martinez and Quinn Latimer, in collaboration with Wuslat Foundation, which focuses its activities on the act of generous listening, hearing beyond words, understanding it as an essential element of each of our connections and constellations. The contributions to the symposium were devoted to forms and ethics of listening and how they are entangled with aspects of poetics, coloniality, gender, spectatorship, critique and non-human worlds. While hearing has, until recently, often been described as a passive act, listening is broadly understood as an active way of engaging with the other, with oneself and with nature. If certain assumptions subscribe listening and storytelling to women and elders, the broadcasted voice is often gendered as male. The talks of this series discuss such ancient and recent ideas about the politics and gender of sound, while addressing listening as a key methodology in reaching goals of political, ecological and artistic equity, from decolonization and democracy building to issues of mental health. This podcast series features talks and performances by Kate Lacey, Ora Zatz, Dylan Robinson, Bill Dietz, Noor Mumbarak, and Jasmina Figueroa. Episode 1, Labor of Listening. Kate Lacey is Professor of Media History and Theory at the University of Sussex. Her first book, Feminine Frequencies, Gender, German Radio and the Public Sphere, 1923-1945, deals with the constitutive role of gender in the development of broadcasting and the role of the media in times of political transition and crisis. Her more recent work, including her book, Listening Publics, The Politics and Experience of Listening in the Media Age, focuses on the idea of listening as a cultural practice, as a category of critique, and as a form of political action. In this podcast episode, she talks about the act of listening as a form of labor, about listening out and listening in, and what it means to create a space where speech and listening can take place. I wanted to begin um, just by telling you something about the genesis of this lecture, because it's very much a work in progress although parts of it build on my work in and since I wrote Listening Publics. That's a caveat, partly by way uh, to explain away the gaps and the fractures in what I'm going to say, and partly in the hope that the things I'm going to say here will resonate through the next couple of days as we collectively attend to what listening means. Because until last week, I was planning on giving a paper about uh, listening as a technique of political action. And I will say more about that in a moment. But as we've just been hearing, the world does feel so different right now. And I felt I had to try hard to think through what it means to listen in these troubled times. So I'm sure I'm not alone in thinking just how hard it is to listen to the news coming out of Ukraine and how this is a crisis coming hard on the heels 
of the COVID crisis, Black Lives Matter, Me Too, and against the all-encompassing backdrop of the climate emergency. There is a temptation to switch off, to stop listening. Commentaries abound advising against doom-scrolling about the need for digital detox and self-care, perhaps by listening into soothing sounds. But that seems to me a counsel of despair, an abdication of our responsibilities as citizens for reasons that I'm going to go on to explain. But this vocabulary that highlights the sheer effort of listening, the fatigue that comes with listening, especially in dark times, this does suggest to me that it might be fruitful to focus in on the labour of listening and how it connects to political and civic action. So by way of a few more caveats, it's not going to be a lecture about listening to sound per se, or not only. As we've just been hearing, I'm particularly interested in listening as a certain kind of political action, and how the introduction of sonic vocabulary and sonic metaphors can help to reframe notions of the public sphere and politics that have long been shaped and distorted by a focus on the visual registers of print culture and the spectacle. Nor is this going to be about listening in interpersonal situations in the sense of embodied face-to-face -face or intimate conversations. Nor is it directly about listening in artistic context, although I'm going to be really interested to see how um, or to listen out for echoes and discussions and the performances to come. Rather, my focus today is going to be on listening in the mediated world, which I take to mean listening in the disembodied, dispersed, and domesticated encounters with others through ordinary, everyday media technologies. There is something about our modern condition of permanent receptivity that makes listening a truly apposite framework for understanding our experience of the modern mediated world. <clears throat> so I hope it's clear that I'm not talking here about sonic media alone, though my interest in all this did begin with that uh, radio history, and specifically German radio in the troubled times of the rise of fascism through the Weimar Republic and the Nazi period. But rather, I want to put the audio back into audience to draw out the idea of all audiences as listening publics. I'm a media historian, and my work is entangled in the discourses of media and cultural studies, despite listening not featuring very much in the critical vocabulary of those disciplines. But my final caveat here is that I am very conscious of my Eurocentric Western biases, and that I will need to work a lot harder to explore uh, the very different ways that I know that there are of conceptualizing various aspects in this approach. For example, the different hierarchies of the senses. Indeed, the conceptualization of different sense perceptions altogether, as Chus was just describing. Different histories of the written and the spoken word, of voice and listening. Different conceptualizations of the self and other. Different evaluations of productivity and receptivity. So let me begin by explaining that I'm interested in trying to think through a politics of listening that doesn't begin with voice. So this time last year, the public conversation in the UK was dominated by the question of women's safety on the streets in the wake of the abduction and murder of a young woman by an off-duty policeman. Sarah Everard had just been walking home. It was just one more example of everyday violence against women, but for some reason it broke through 
uh, and the question of women's safety began to dominate the headlines for days. Women once again were speaking up and mobilizing to reclaim the streets. Feminists once again were having to make the point that even framing this story as one about women's safety rather than about men's violence was part of the problem, particularly when the conversation turns to what women can do to protect themselves or even how they should calm down and put their fears into statistical perspective. It struck me then that the politics of voice more generally can fall into this trap of requiring marginalized or dispossessed groups to find solutions when we ask how to give people a voice or how to make ourselves heard. Again, feminists have long critiqued how women have had to learn to speak in certain ways to be heard in public spaces that were set up to recognize and validate certain forms of speech over others. Techniques that center then on giving people a voice or that focus on how to adapt modes of speech to a given situation to make a voice heard can be important tactics but I think are limited strategically in addressing this crisis of voice because they are accommodations to a prevailing system where some voices resonate more than others. Clearly one response has been to think about listening, particularly the responsibilities of people in power or positions of privilege to listen to the voices of others. But without diminishing the significance of this ambition, I suggest this position tends to remain rooted in that same politics of voice. Firstly, the focus tends to be on listening to particular voices, listening in to particular voices, listening in more closely, listening better. But listening here remains a responsive activity, an activity produced by the voice, and an activity that then belongs to the voice in a way that can be observed, measured, commodified, and exchanged in the form of audience figures or engagement, for example, or by extension, the data trails that we leave behind knowingly or unknowingly in our every mediated engagement with the world. Secondly, in situations like politicians' listening events, voices speak in response to a question posed by the ostensible listener. In other words, it is the voice of the listener as speaker that frames the discussion. Not only does this produce the context within which voices come to speak, it means voices will still only get listened to if they are answering the question posed and in a form that suits the listener's purposes. This limitation is concealed in plain sight in that well-meaning phrase, giving someone a voice, which from this point of view actually suggests some kind of extenuated ventriloquist act. I would like to argue instead for a politics of listening that does not come out of a politics of voice, or at least maybe sits alongside it. At one level, this simply recognizes that to listen, in English at least, is both a transitive and an intransitive verb. It's possible to listen without listening to anything. Listening can therefore be a state of anticipation, that is, a listening out for something. There is a radical openness in this anticipatory moment that has surprisingly profound implications for reconfiguring a politics of voice if we think about this in terms of listening publics. It would mean thinking in terms of there being a public listening out for voices, providing a space and a calling and a reason for those voicings, rather, or alongside, thinking about voices trying to reach a public and stimulate them into a response. Rather than thinking of a listening public in the form of an audience constituted by a text, 
It would mean thinking about the critical potential that lies latent in the public. It would recognize the part played by listeners, both embodied and latent, in the production of the spaces and stimuluses by which voices come to speak. It would mean that instead of conceiving critical listening as a kind of decoding or translation practice, a responsive practice, it would recognize the productive power of listening and its political responsibilities. A crucial role of listening out, for example, would be in enabling and auditing the diversity of voices in the public sphere. But perhaps the most radical dimension of listening publics lies in its characteristic intersubjectivity and its resistance to commodification. The privileging of voice in our constructions of democracy goes hand in hand with the idea of the liberty of the individual and the valuing of expression as individual property. Incidentally, the idea of voice as individual property obscures the process of listening to other voices over a lifetime by which one comes to have and own a voice of one's own. But listening, specifically listening out rather than listening in, evades appropriation by inhabiting a space of plurality and collectivity. And it's in this sense that I argue with, uh, that listening publics occupy a potentially radical political space in the face of any number of institutional, psychological, and algorithmic mechanisms currently steering us away from this kind of political listening and the fetishizing of voice as the only marker of political participation. Listening out for voices that confront and jar, as well as those that comfort and support, is difficult and challenging, but it is an essential technique and labor of democratic political life. So that, in a nutshell, is my main thesis, that just as the freedom of speech is a freedom that needs to be practiced, honed, and defended, if it is not to wither away, then so must it be matched by a freedom of listening by which I mean not just the freedom to listen, but a responsibility to listen out. And if this is a responsibility that is difficult and challenging in any case, how much more so in troubled times? In keeping with the sonic metaphors, we might think of these troubled times as times of disquiet or unquiet. And a sense of unquiet necessitates action. And we might contrast this to the inaction associated with a culture of contentment. We might ask, does listening change under these conditions of unquiet? Is it harder to listen out? Is it more urgent? And I've been struck for a long time by the different adjectives found in the literature around political listening about the need to listen obliquely, to listen across difference, to dwell as listeners in discomfort. It seems clear that listening in times of conflict and discord needs courage and resilience and yes, generosity. But we should not pretend that listening easily or always produces a space of empathy, concord, harmony, or mutual respect. Listening out is hard work. And that's why I want to try to think through the labor of listening in these troubled times. And I don't mean to try to offer a guide to listening or even to focus in on a particular case study, the war, the violence, the cancel culture, the, the climate, the pandemic. Unfortunately, the phrase troubling times is disturbingly appropriate across time and across context. But for me, the phrase trouble resonates theoretically in a, in a couple of particularly pertinent ways. Firstly, it's a term that appears and reappears uh, in feminist thought. So think of 
Judith Butler's gender trouble or Haraway's staying with the trouble. And I would say that listening is widely associated with a feminist ethics of care amid the trouble. Secondly, communication is, as John Durham-Peters has reminded us so clearly, a problem. It's a trouble for us. Communication breakdown seems to be the norm. And finally, I think it's clear that crisis in the media age invites listening in the sense that we congregate together to listen to announcements, that we listen out for news, for updates, for reactions and affirmations. And we might add that the climate crisis invites listening beyond the voice, beyond the human, to the sounds of nature, to alternative narratives of causality, temporality and being. And although I'm not going to pursue those questions today, I'm sure that other people will uh, in the course of the symposium. But these questions of listening as care and as cure, as a labor of res restoration and respect is really important. And they might require us to expand our conventional understanding of what listening entails. And to quote Oliveros again, as she's just suggested, reflecting on insights from First Nation practices, we should learn to walk as if we had ears on the soles of our feet. So in the context then of our conference theme, listening is being conceived of as an act of generosity. So here we are with listening as an act, as active, as an activity, as an action. And here we see that we're already engaged in a critique of the passivity so often, and I think so wrongly, associated with listening. And I think there might be quite a lot to say about how we devalue passivity. Um, but for now, the, the focus is on the act of listening and the act of listening as a form of labor. So conventionally, we understand labor as being productive. Listening, in other words, makes things happen. Listening out, as I say, generates a space for voice in all the ways that voice might manifest. Alice Rayner has described how rhetorically listening is not simply auditory, it is a framing of the speech. But I'd go even further and say that listening out is the act that ultimately produces speech. It is your willingness to listen that is making me speak right now. And it is your ability to listen as a collective that reveals the important intersubjective condition of listening in public. And I'm struck by the other meaning of the word labor in English at this point, the painful and beautiful process of giving birth, of bringing life and all its potential into the world. So it might not be quite akin to giving birth, um, but it has no doubt taken a lot of work to get us into this room to produce the conditions for listening. In any listening situation, we need to acknowledge the labor involved in preparing the space, the time, the setting, the mood, the technologies, and the techniques for listening. In her recent description of a listening toolbox for feminist practice, Claudia Firth has written that if the labor of listening is to be taken seriously, it also often necessitates a slow, process-based temporality. It is not always enough to set up a space and declare it as a space in which listening can take place, as often happens with managerial or public consultations. In times of trouble, of conflict and dissonance, this process of preparation can really take a long time, a lot of listening. 
It is necessary to listen openly and with great patience until others feel comfortable in speaking or voicing their position. Listening out is a practice of mutual trust. Speakers must trust that there is an audience ready and willing to listen. It is the labor of listening to create those conditions of trust. In her work on the politics of listening, Leo Bassel has written that solidarity is a conversation in which relationships are built over the long term. So there's a labor in preparing the conditions for listening, but also, of course, in developing the skills of both listening out and listening in. Generally, when we think of listening skills, it's the latter that come to the fore. These kinds of listening in skills are field specific and context dependent. They may be skills akin to therapeutic listening, for example, or the skills of decoding associated with the work of appreciation, connoisseurship, and various forms of decoding to do with media literacy, for example. And here again, we must acknowledge the labor involved in developing these skills over time the investment in accruing specialist forms of what I would call auditory capital. There's much to be said about this training of the ear in various specialist fields, whether, for example, in music or journalism, pedagogy, anthropology, acoustic ecology, or the sounding arts, to name just a few. But I would suggest that in many of these specialist discourses, there is a tendency to ignore the ways in which there has been a training of the ear undertaken over time and without intent by exposure to and engagement with a whole range of everyday audio and audiovisual media. This is a training that can, that can and does happen at an individual level, but is probably more significant when considered as an environmental change over the long durée. In other words, my contention is that the proliferation of mediated sound has gradually, but persistently and radically, can reconfigure the sites, the techniques, the expectations and understandings of listening as a cultural practice. Key among these are the ways in which people have come to take for granted the ostensible dislocation of sounds from their point of origin. Listening in this way has long since become second nature, but all the more reason therefore to recall how profoundly uncanny and mysterious were the early encounters with such a phenomenon and how elaborate and sustained have been the attempts to persuade or allow listeners to have faith in these new sonic representations and their connection to the real. A second dimension was to accommodate new possibilities of mastery over the immediate soundscape and by association to the possibility of loss of control. The rapid domestication of sound technologies like the telephone, the radio, the gramophone, introduced new ways of overlaying the ambient soundscape with a choice of mediated and commodified sounds. Sounds that with time became increasingly manipulable in terms of volume, sound quality, mobility, and so on. Listening then becomes available in new ways as a practice of self-regulation in everyday life. A practice through which to negotiate relations of power. And yet the proliferation of other people's sounds as unwanted noise, or of encountering the accidental sounds of white noise, crackles and hiss as the signs of technological mediation made themselves apparent, uh, is a sign of the loss of that control. The third accommodation, historically, was to the restoration of sound and of listening to a public sphere that had been significantly de in the age of print. 
And this is hugely significant in various ways, but here it's enough to single out the way in which sounds could be heard by listeners separated in time and space, and yet engaged through the sonic address, real or latent, into some sort of communion with others, near or far. So the development, domestication, and democratization of these forms of listening was neither inevitable nor straightforward, but they are by now long since established, and for most listeners, automatic. They are also ubiquitous in modern mediated experience. It is through this unacknowledged labor over time, this practice of listening to mediated sounds on the phone, on the radio, on record, in film and television and online, in public and private spaces, alone and together, that listeners have adapted their expectations, their experience and their expertise. The quotidian listening experience is now characterized by easy and unremarkable encounters with sounds from any number of sources which are choosable, manipulable, controllable, storable, shareable. Sounds that might be listened to with the passion of an audiophile through the focus of high-spec headphones or as a companionable or disruptive backdrop to other activities. Sounds that might be scheduled or serendipitously encountered. Sounds that might be acousmatic or bonded visually to their source. Sounds that might be ephemeral or infinitely repeatable. Sounds that might evoke emotions and memories through their familiarity or inspire curiosity or irritation through their novelty. Sounds that ground a listener in a particular time and space or that transport them far away. Sounds that make a listener turn inward or reveal connections with invisible or distant others. Sounds that inform, educate, and entertain. Sounds that belong, and sounds that startle. Sometimes listeners will reflect on these sounds explicitly as listening experiences, sometimes not. But this is the reality of ordinary listening in the media age, in all its extraordinary complexity and diversity. The mediatization of everyday life has then produced new stores of auditory capital that can be drawn on in the labor of listening. But if listening has accommodated to the changing affordances of the mediated environment over time, and that we are always already skilled in multiple ways of listening, that still doesn't mean that all forms of listening come easy or that it isn't an ongoing form of labor. In terms of political participation in particular, I'd suggest that listening is part of the struggle of finding a voice, of coming into being as a citizen. If the phrase finding a voice reminds us of how speaking up in public, even in well-established democracies, is a practice that has to be learnt, honed, struggled for, defended, then isn't learning to listen also a process, also a struggle, and how much more of a struggle and effort in troubled times. In this sense, listening is not just a matter of empathising or absorbing or identifying, but I think it is in some sense a process of recognising and translating. The word recognition is worth pausing on because it looms so large in the, in the literature on political listening. And I think it has to do with the intellectual labor, the cognitive labor associated with listening across difference. It's about reflecting on and rethinking what you thought you knew about the other and about yourself. It's a process literally, as Quinn was just saying, of recognition. There is clearly an affinity between listening and thinking in the sense that they are both about being open and receptive to new ideas, ready and willing to change. And whenever I'm Googling for images of listening to illustrate my talks, because 
it's so hard to listen without having something to look at. I'm always struck by how many of the images seem to depict people in deep contemplation. There is also, in this kind of listening, in political listening, a large degree of emotional labour. In fact, we could turn this around and say that a large part of emotional labour has to do with listening and is often, let's face it, primarily women's work. It's probably not surprising that this kind of listening work often stresses the need for a degree of intimacy, often associated with proximity and specificity. But this is complicated by mediation, which at first seems both to preclude intimate um, and embodied communication, being distanced, dispersed and disciplined. But I think that would be to neglect the role that media have in producing intimacy, in the sense of enabling our knowledge of distant others, of deepening the traces of many different lives over time, and of maintaining intimacies when circumstances keep us apart. It's also worth remembering that much of our mediated communication, and particularly our mediated listening, is often less about listening for content than it is as phatic communication, listening for affect and connection. And there have been some interesting critical reflections on listening through the pandemic, particularly for those of us living through lockdowns where our reliance on mediated communication exploded into almost every aspect of our experience. One such account describes how the pandemic and its home-centric living intensified our attempts to pay attention to varied media texts and accounts of other media users in a way that highlighted recognition and orientation to others, instead of concentrating on one's voice and becoming heard. In a crisis, we seek to find ontological security, understanding and solidarity through an effort to understand the situation through official announcements and expert opinions, but also testing how our own experiences were reflected and through others' reactions, journalistic content and expert opinions. Listening out in this instance becomes about learning how to situate oneself, how to make sense of a situation. As Kim Monroe has put it in the context of rethinking documentary practice, a turn towards listening makes visible, or audible, she maybe should have said, multiple forms of knowledge and relationships, as well as an ethics of care. Becoming attuned to listening is an ethical imperative to reconsider our individual positions as implicated within a broader ecology of existence and an awareness of positions that are incommensurate with our own. So one of the things, or the interesting things that emerges here is that listening in this sense doesn't have to be about dialogue or straightforward interactivity. Dialogue is often held up as the archetype of generous communication with its give and take. But this point of view would seem to devalue forms of communication that are not interpersonal or bespoke or that are not immediate in both senses of that word, both unfolding in real time and without the artifice of technological mediation. While there are a few moral panics about readers not immediately responding as writers, much of the distrust of mass communication rests in the misrecognition of the listener being rendered voiceless. In fact, listening only seems passive from a perspective that demands a rather straight-jacketed version of reciprocity, where a listener has the opportunity to become a speaker whose voice will carry equally far and resonate in just the same space, without any delay or distortion. 
But this is a perspective that presupposes an ideal speech situation, to borrow a phrase, in which participants in a dialogue have equal status, number, and power, and are already in agreement about the rules of engagement and of turn-taking. Be that as it may, broadcasting, as a sort of archetypal mode of mass communication, if you like, seems diametrically opposed to the generosity of turn-taking dialogue. So broadcasting has long been decried as monologic, unidirectional, and a form of almost propagandistic communication rendering its listeners mute. It seems to be all about dissemination rather than dialogue. And yet, as John Durham Peters and others have described it, you can describe it as precisely a generous form of communication in the sense that it is a loving and disinterested form of communication that does not require reciprocation. It doesn't demand reciprocation in real time or in kind. The English word broadcasting comes from agriculture, from the act of scattering seeds, not knowing if they will land on barren or fertile ground. Targeted, bespoke communication, insemination, if you will, is certainly a more efficient and more predictable mode of communication, but it leaves much less room for the labor of listening. In other words, there's less room for the work that listeners do on the things that they hear to turn those sounds or those messages into meaning. The work of the mainstream media industries is focused on encouraging people to listen in to particular content, not to listen out in the sense that I've been advocating here as a form of political action. In place of a listening public, we are set up as a commodified audience made up of self-interested individual consumers controlling privatized soundscapes and listening in to sounds targeted at particular demographics or communities of the like-minded, living in echo chambers that reinforce our opinions shored up by the algorithms serving us up more of the same. Broadcasting historically, and I think there are good reasons for saying that we've been living these last hundred years in the radio century. Broadcasting introduced for the first time the possibility of listening to distant others, of collective listening, of constituting communicative spaces that transgress physical, political, national and social boundaries. And it popularizes a mode of communication that is not dependent on a notion of reciprocity, of responding in kind. It allows for ideas and points of view to germinate in their own soil, in their own time, and in the active reception of its many listeners. In fact, I think it's opposite to think of mediated speech acts in all their variety as having the potential to resonate with the listener. Resonance, as I'm sure you all know, is a property of acoustic space that is a form of causality, but not the linear causality associated with visual culture or simplistic modes uh, or models of communication. Resonance is distinct from reception. It is still about responsiveness, even responsibility, but its response may be delayed and it may take a variety of forms. To put that more simply, as listeners, you may respond to this talk by talking up in the, in the Q&A afterwards, but maybe it will spark some different mode of response in some different contexts, much further down the line. Maybe you won't respond at all, and that's okay too. But while we're thinking about how responses can unfold over time and how they can be entangled with other experiences and other moments of communication, it's also worth pointing out that playback technologies also allow listeners to listen again to listen more deeply, to catch those things that perhaps they missed on first hearing or were recorded deep in the past and that allow them perhaps to listen anew. This is another aspect of the labor of listening in the age of media, 
an example perhaps of the kind of deep and generous listening that is possible because of and not despite recording technologies. But if that kind of deep listening is about listening in, then I want to return to the idea of listening out in a moment, particularly the labour of listening as a technique of auditing the public sphere. But before I do that, I just wanted to say that thinking about the labour of listening is also an invitation to think about how labour is valued and evaluated and how it figures in circuits of exchange. What are the rewards? How are the listeners, different modes of listening, differently rewarded? In media terms, this usually boils down to questions of quantification, monetization, and ownership. The media economy, at least in terms of commercial models, is built on an attention economy. How do you attract people to your content? How do you measure the quantity of people attending to it and the quality of that attention? What is the share of the ear? Much of the listening we do as media audiences is secondary listening, listening that's distracted, something that we do while doing something else, driving or working or walking or reading. In the online world, lurking, eavesdropping, simply listening is valued less highly than demonstrating interaction in some way, even if that's an act as limited as sharing or liking or visiting a website. To the extent that listening per se is hard to measure or hard to control, it might suggest that the act of listening is at some level an act of resistance or escape from the commercial media logics. Basically, if you can quantify it, you can monetize it by selling your audience to advertisers. To this extent, the media have long recognized audiencing as a type of labor. In particular, the work of an audience is to read, watch, or listen to the advertising in order to be rewarded by the informational content, content or entertainment that they seek. The purpose of the communication, though, is first and foremost the production of audiences. The production of content is just the means to that end. This is a logic that tends to mitigate against plurality and diversity. And this is where I think the labor of listening as auditing comes in. If the public sphere is an auditorium where the freedom of speech is exercised, then it is the members of the listening public who become the auditors of public exchanges and performances. The listeners, in other words, hold the responsibility not to close their ears to expressions of opinions with which they might not agree, and by extension, to ensure that the whole spectrum of opinion gets heard. Media plurality is not, in fact, guaranteed by the freedom of speech, or at least not by the freedom of speech alone. For those who speak might all speak with the same voice, either through choice, coercion, or the conditions of the marketplace. It is in the labor of exercising the freedom of listening that limitations on plurality are registered, whether that be the dominance of certain voices or the absence, marginalization, and censorship of others. Even silence may register in the politics of listening as a marker of agency, a political strategy not to engage in a particular incarnation of the public sphere. It's certainly true that there are forms of listening practice which are all about recognizing shared experience, resonating with others, producing moments of solidarity. Lucia Farinati and Claudia Firth have written really interestingly about this in the context of feminist art activism, for example, in their book, The Force of Listening. But the kind of political listening that I'm talking about in the context of what Roger Silverstone once called the mediapolis, the media public sphere, the mediated space where we most often and most persistently encounter the other, that kind of political listening is also about the preservation of difference, the preservation of difference and diversity as plurality, difference as an achievement, not something to be listened away, if you like. 
So the openness of political listening is about keeping open channels of communication, accepting ongoing difference and conflicting interests. It's therefore a difficult, challenging and risk-laden labour. As Justine Lloyd has put it, listening takes work, makes things work, is work in and of itself. And as a labour of care, listening could be an active and open-ended disposition to revise and reconstitute social conditions. Thinking about all this in relation to mediated experience, we need to recognise that this raises questions of media ethics. An ethics of reception, yes, but also an ethical imperative in relation to our infrastructures of communication that, even in the best of times, mitigate against what Nick Caldry has called listening beyond the echoes. It also raises questions for media literacy so that we invest in the skills required for listening out and receptive generosity. It takes effort to remain open and curious, to listen courageously and adventurously, and it is a labour that is only possible in community with others. Promise No Promises is a podcast series produced by the Gender Centre for Excellence a research project of the Institute Art, Gender, Nature, HGK, FHNW, Academy of Art and Design in Basel, conceived as a think tank tasked to assess, develop and propose new social languages and methods to understand the role of gender in the arts, culture, science and technology, as well as in all knowledge areas that are interconnected with the field of culture today. If you're interested to get more information about further podcasts and events related to this project, please visit detank.ch or subscribe to our newsletter at info.kunst.hgk at fhnw.ch. Editing and voiceover, Elena Cesar. Music, Niklas Kammermeier. Research Team, Tabea Rothfuchs and Marion Ritzmann. Press and Communication, Anna Franke. Technical Support by Esther Hunziger, Karin Bohrer, Konrad Siegel and Chris Handberg. Copyright at Institute Art, Gender, Nature, HGK, FHNW 2022.